flight recorders are running. This week on Tech Radio, Ireland and Space 4.0. Hi, I'm Artemis. I am a computer-generated AI voice, and you're listening to Tech Radio. Every week online and on air with RTE Radio, we bring you the very latest in tech. You're welcome to episode 986. This week, we're talking to the people at Ireland's brand new Irish Space Association and discovering loads about the Irish in orbit. Also, we hear why Ireland is central to TikTok's future. We have a huge tech birthday to acknowledge and AI is going for Grammy. This is Tech Radio with Dusty Rhodes and Niall Kitson. Our editor-in-chief, Niall Kitson, joining us as always. I suppose we'll start off with a happy birthday to Google. Guess how many years? Uh, Oh, okay. I'm going to say Google is a lot younger than either of us. (laughs) Let's start from there. (laughs) Actually, that's not a bad bad way to look at it. Um, Start from where we are as humans. Look at how old Google is and how much has been accomplished uh, in that time. So, okay, the internet changed with Google. So let's start at where we are now. So 2023, um, Google redefined search. So let's start with 2000 and work backwards a little. I'm going to say 1996. I think they were working on it in 1996. It launched in... Early September, nineteen ninety eight, making Google twenty five years of age. Mm. Uh, and you're right; it was kind of. I remember the, the the first time I heard about Google, and it was the late nineties. And it was just somebody said to me, like, because I was using Alta Vista and Yahoo and all that kind of stuff at the time. Mm. And uh, I remember actually, uh, if you had a website, you had to submit it to the directory where a human would uh, check it out. And then blah, 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 if they felt it was good enough, then they would add it to the directory. That's this when I was mucking around with them. Yeah. And there, there were internet, internet phone books at one point as well, weren't there? Oh, stop all kinds of stuff. But then Google came along. So we have these pages right, with, with uh, these search directories and they were just full of suggestions and lists. And it was like a directory. If you want you know websites on this topic, well, then there's all these other subtopics. It was, it was a bit of a nightmare. And then Google came along the way it was introduced to me uh, they said oh you should try it it's just a search box it's just a white page with a search box in the middle and you type in what you're looking for I was like wow and they haven't really strayed too much from that I don't think well, well, I in think certain respects, I mean, if you if you look at the Google search page, yeah, absolutely. And they, they do throw out these novelties every every so often just to, wow, have you seen the Google search page lately? They've embedded a game in it or something like oh, that. Oh, that kind of I stuff, mean, yeah. it, it, it is one of the most effective pieces of graphic design you will ever see. Just white pixels, takes no time whatever mm. to, to load. It's just a box because that's all you want. Uh, and away you go. Great user experience. Um, not surrounded by content in the way that mm. a lot of the other search engines were. And uh, off you go. I mean, it's very mm. easy to see how Google got popular so quickly because it was just so obvious what you did with the page. Mm. Um, and of course, you know, with search, kind of invented search engine optimization as well. Well, that's what it was all about. That's what is search optimization is all about Google and and stuff like that, uh, and and getting up on on the list. I mean, the innovations that they have brought us kind of strange, right? Because they did the search and that and that was a runaway success, as you say. And then they did AdWords, which was kind of a little bit. Ooh, this is a bit weird. All right, you can actually kind of put in your own stuff, and it only costs a few pennies, and you will be blah 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 blah. And of course, that was phenomenally successful. But then they started getting into like, remember when they first launched Gmail? Do you remember Gmail? You had mm-hmm. to be invited. Yeah, I remember getting a Gmail invite and feeling very special. <laughs> there you go. I was kind of, why are they running? Why are they running an email service? And now look at it, like you know. Then they started Maps, yeah. and you kind of think, well, why, why are they doing Maps? And then they they, they announced Android, uh, and they said, hey, we're giving this away for free, ish. Um, then they bought uh, YouTube, then they started doing Street View and, and uh, all of these. Now, I know you're going to come up with a list because it's just the way you are. And you're going, but what about the fails? <laughs> it's their birthday. All right. Let's just go with the positive stuff. All right. Uh, mm-hmm. And then Chrome, Chrome, which we use every day. I mean, that in itself is 15 years old. They launched in 2000. Yeah, and it's what, 50% of the, the search market now? 
Mm-hmm. And then if you think wow. about anybody who is... Yeah, 50% of, of browsers in the world. Yeah. If you think of it, anybody who is 25, under 25 or 30, they don't know a world without Google. Pretty scary, isn't it? All those it Zoomers. Is pretty scary. Uh, yeah, indeed. It's, uh, it's, it's interesting. But where is Google going to go? Is Google going to be here in another 25 years, though? I mean, oh, what yeah. is another Absolutely. 25 years is going to be 2023. So that'll be uh, 2048. I think the way we interact with Google is going to change. Um, we probably oh, yeah. won't be typing anymore. We will just Definitely. say, hey, Google, where do I find this? Hmm. <laughs> and that's that's what will happen. And we might look at things affecting SEO that we just don't think of anymore. I mean, there's more than 200 ranking factors when it comes to SEO, whether it's uh, links between sites, links between quality sites, whether it's headlines. You might remember there was an article uh, written, it was one of the American newspapers where it was, uh, this headline is written for Google. <laughs> you know, it sort of turned the way we write into this very kind of mechanistic kind of way. Uh, yes. it's, all, it's all about eyeballs. It's all about keywords, mm. making sure you get your keyword in your H1 tag. So many ranking factors. Uh, and of course, you know, as people that deal in content, we are slaves to, to the algorithm. We got to keep producing content because mm. that's another ranking factor that Google is really interested in. And, you know, other things like, you know, freshness or, you know, length or things like that. So the way content has changed to suit Google, I think is quite interesting. Um, mobile uh, websites do much better uh, than non-mobile websites, although I mm. think pretty much everyone is using HTML5 now anyway. So in the future, is it going to be a case of, you know, websites that are particularly good at integrating AI will rank better than those that mm. don't? Or, you know, websites that have voice recognition will do much better than websites that don't. Um, we don't know what features are going to power SEO in the future, but we know that when Google steps up and says, okay, by the way, we think this is really important. Mm. Everybody has to go there. I'm going to hazard a guess. And I'm going to say that Google won't exist in 25 years. I Ooh, think shots fired. Else, I just think something else is going to come along that is going to completely take it over and just blow Google out of the water. You know, and it's kind of like we're seeing something like it, and I don't know how it's going to play out with AI. Okay. So up until now, mm -hmm. we've like Google search has been amazing. It's a little simple box on a page and you put in and you get whatever it is that you want. But the result of whatever it is that you want now is a list to a whole load of websites that may or may not have the information that you want. We're now living in an era where we're seeing the beginnings of AI, where you will just ask the AI for the information and it will just give it to you. Okay, here's a good Completely example. Completely bypassing. A, a, a good. Now, I'm not saying that that's going to be the death of Google. Far from, all yeah. right? But what I'm saying is a lot of the things that you suggested about search and how it's going to work in the future, I think something is going to come along in the next five, ten years that will just change everything. And we can't even think of it. Okay, well, here's here's a good example. And this is where Google really should be worried. Uh, and of course, we know they're they're digging into AI with, with BARD and, you know, we, we can talk about that. But um, if you look at the Star Trek version of how we interact with computers, hmm. it's, okay, computer, tell me this. And you get an answer. You don't get a page of, you know, a list presented to you where, you know, you're, you can be fairly sure that if you're below the fold, you're not going to get read. Mm. If you're on page two onwards, you're definitely not going to get read. Um, you just want an answer. Mm. Uh, and I think Google is really going to struggle because they have engineered the internet, but people's tastes are going to change so quickly when they find that AI is much easier to use than Google. And perhaps, you know, you're going to get things like hallucinations, uh, but it's not like there isn't plenty of misinformation that Google mm. uh, will link you to. Mm. So uh, we've gone from a stage maybe of looking at the internet as an engineering problem to one that focuses on a content problem. Mm. If you see where I'm coming from. I do. I do. You know, I'm, 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 I'm thinking about Google as huge as it is now. Once upon a time, AOL was huge. And Netscape yep. was huge. Netscape was the internet once upon a time. And read mm -hmm. audio and kind of all that. Apple 
Apple was enormous at one stage and then Steve Jobs left and it all just went to under the Pepsi guy. It just went to pop. Mm. <laughs> I was only yeah. when Steve came back and they, I, they I tell came you in with where the Google, So, mm. Yeah. I tell you where Google aren't going anywhere and it's not their core uh, business way back in the day. But all the likes of Google Docs, Google Spreadsheets, Google Drive, Google Forms, basically all, all taking all the good bits of Microsoft's office suite and adding mm. collaboration. Um, that was, you know, a huge game changer Yeah, back in the day. And yeah. I think Google saving grace will probably be moving away from search and finding services. You know how they measure dog years? <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. I'd say 25 years uh, in the internet business is like, you know, got a hundred years in human years. <laughs> Gosh, that's nearly as old as us, Dusty. <laughs> oh, stop. Listen, let's move on and talk about the EU. Because I mean, kind of speaking of Google and, and Alphabet, really more than anything else, mm-hmm. and all the big companies, the big brands, Apple, Amazon, uh, Meta Platforms, uh, ByteDance, who of course are behind TikTok and, and Microsoft. There's a big, big change coming with those, in particular with the EU, which is also going to affect them worldwide. Yeah, the EU has designated those six companies as gatekeepers uh, in relation to the Digital Markets Act. So, okay, well, what does this mean? Okay, at the moment, we have two pieces of legislation, the Digital Markets Act and the Digital Services Act that that came into effect earlier this year, right? And these are sort of, you know, GDPR worked out so well in regulating big tech. What else can we have a look at? That's pro-consumer, that's pro-good governance uh, and make sure that we have the teeth to actually enforce it, right? Because hmm. GDPR fines now they're they're commonplace, but they are they. Are, I mean, Facebook got slapped with one for one point three billion. You know, these are not um, these are not insignificant amounts of money. Um, so let's have a look at the big players in the digital markets now. Um, to put this in context, right? What is the difference between a digital market and a digital service? So I was having to think about this. So the Digital Services Act makes people accountable for what happens on their platform, right? So say we have a discussion forum, okay? Mm-hmm. Um, and there's people spouting all sorts of nonsense on it. We'll say there's lots of hate speech, um, a lot of misinformation traded, a lot of conspiracy theories, a lot of very objectionable content as well, right? So that is a digital service and that is, you know, that is what the Digital Services Act regulates. Okay. The Digital Markets Act works in this way. Say you have loads and loads of discussion boards, discussion websites out there. All of them have to use technology originated by company X in order to work, right? Company X effectively owns that digital platform space. That means they come under the remit of the Digital Markets Act. They created that space. All these other companies work in it. It's the company that creates the space that comes under scrutiny here, right? So um, the EU came out and they mentioned their sort of their top six companies that they reckon sort of uh, are in line for uh, scrutiny under the Digital Markets Act, um, Alphabet, Amazon, Apple, ByteDance, Meta, Microsoft, and Samsung. Sort of the big names in, in big tech, that's fair enough. And just to give you an idea of some do's and don'ts um, that these gatekeepers now have to uh, adhere to. They have to allow third parties to interoperate with their own services in certain specific situations. So not all the time, but you know, in certain situations, they, you know, they can't arbitrarily say no. Um, they have to allow their business users to access the data that they generate in their use of the gatekeeper's platform. So say if you have an app on um, you know, the Apple App Store, you should be able to interrogate any bit of data that that app has generated that Apple is using you know, for their own feedback or just any bit of data that you know, the, the app has generated that Apple has but maybe at the moment isn't sharing with you. You have the right to go, hey, Apple, I, I want to know this. I want to know everything about how I'm performing. Netflix uh, would come under, um, so it w- would have problems with that, with 
third party companies that were producing content for it because Netflix doesn't release streaming figures. So under the DMA, Netflix would potentially have to uh, release streaming figures. Mm. If Netflix was considered a gatekeeper at the moment, it's not because it's Mm. got competitors like Amazon Prime and Disney+. Plus. Another thing that companies have to do is to allow business users to promote their offers and conclude contracts with customers outside of the gatekeeper's platform. So ah. again, to look at a, an example of Walt Garden um, being the the uh, App Store, Apple's App Store, um, you should be able to do business outside of that gatekeeper's platform. So an, an example of this would be, you remember the big argument between Apple and Epic Games because Epic was running was running ads inside its yeah. apps yeah. that took you away to Epic's own website because they didn't like Apple's terms and conditions. That sort of thing would be protected under the Digital Markets Act. So, and here's some things that gatekeepers can no longer do, right? Treat products and services offered by the gatekeeper itself more favorably in ranking than similar services or products offered by third parties on the gatekeeper's platform. Straight away, you're thinking of Google Ads, the way that they always appear top of the list beside Google rankings. That got Google into huge problems with the EU because Google were basically going, oh, but you know, our product, to which Apple, uh, to which the EU said, well, yeah, but there's competitors in, in this space. You have to treat them as, e- as equals. Mm. You know, it doesn't matter that you, that you own Search. Search is one product. You're treating uh, your own product here differently to your competitors. That's not on. Another thing that you can't do anymore is prevent customers from linking up to businesses outside their platforms. So say if Google decides, well, we don't like this company over here. We're not going to link to them anymore. Well, that is that is a big no-no. Um, and again, if you look at a wall garden like the App Store, I'm, I'm going to keep coming back to the App Store be honest, because it's, it's just a very simple example yeah. of a, a walled garden approach. I'm not picking on Apple as such. It's just a, a, a common example that we're familiar with out there. Um, so preventing consumers from linking to businesses outside their platforms. Yep, that's fine. Another no-no, preventing users from uninstalling any pre-installed software or app if they wish to. Straight away, you're looking at anyone running Android you're looking at anyone running Windows where, you know, it might come with, you know, bloatware or anything like that. Mm. Uh, You now have the right in EU law to uninstall anything you don't like. That's pretty cool. Same with Mac. It's a nice pro-consumer effort. Yep. And you also, uh, another no-no, tracking end users outside of the gatekeeper's core platform service for the purposes of targeted advertising. And there is one company in particular that is getting into a lot of trouble over this. Um, can you, it starts with an M. I was about to say, guess. name them, name them. Name them. <laughs> Meta, well, Microsoft, this is, a, this Meta, is an issue Meta are having at the moment. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm sure, you know, more cases will, will come up. But anyone that uses third-party tracking cookies, um, that's, you know, I mean... We're kind of at the stage where browsers uh, are at this sort of, okay, we're, we're readying ourselves for life without third-party mm. cookies. You know, first-party cookies, that's that's fine. You know, you've gone to our website. It's sort of um, making that data usable by other platforms uh, in sort of a real-time sense for personalization purposes. Yeah, that's not so good. So would you hazard a guess at what the penalties for this are? Oh, okay. So, uh, the, 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 the nature of that question, uh, infers that it's big and it's bigger than what we've seen already. And already we have fines of up to 4% of global turnover or revenue. So I'm going to say that for those big six, if they were to break the rules, I'm going to go, I'm going to go all in on 10%, 10% of global revenue. Wow. You're good. You're on fire today. <laughs> Am I right? If, yeah, you are. No. Now, <gasps> total worldwide annual turnover up to 10% for an yeah. infringement. However, 
in the event of repeated infringements, that can go up to 20%. Holy, 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 holy. And do you know what? I know that the big tech companies will take that seriously because even when it's been sitting at the 4% up until today, you do see them taking action when the EU says you need to, like, for example, uh, the EU is telling Apple Everybody needs to use the same thing. And it looks like it's going to be USB-C. All right. So you've got to use it. That's a really good example. That's a really good example. Apple, Apple, of all people, the one company that goes, no, we do what we want Mm -hmm. in the interest of our customers, close inverted commas. Uh, Even Apple are doing what the EU are telling them to do. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And that that shows how companies are future-proofing themselves because who else is using it? Be real about this. Um, so, we said that when they launched it. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when uh, I always go back to the discussion we had with Max Schrems a couple of years ago, uh, yeah. when we were talking about how effective GDPR was going to be. And he said, look, for as long as companies can just eat these fines and they're making more of the services they're being fined for, they're just going to keep running them. You know, if, if, you know, the net, if Google, if Google ads or, you know, whatever ads is making more than it's losing, uh, using a particular system that would be expensive to replace, they'll just keep eating up those fines. That's, that's, that's what big tech is going to do. However, if you're being hit with something like 20% of your worldwide turnover, ah, that's a lot of money and that's going to make you do some serious soul searching. Absolutely. Absolutely. Do you know what? The last 10 minutes of you explaining the Digital Markets Act is the clearest explanation I have had of the whole thing so far. So thank you very much. You're very welcome. Rusty. Let's move on to some uh, showbiz news. Uh-huh. <laughs> From the Digital Let's Markets Act. Let's lighten it Act up a little bit. <laughs> to showbiz news. Um, do you remember earlier on in the year we had, uh, who was a ghostwriter or something like that? I can't remember the name of the group. But anyway, somebody put out an AI version of Drake doing a duet with an AI version of The Weeknd and it took the internet by storm and was seen millions and millions and millions of times. And then the record company for the artist stepped in and said, oh, this is copyright infringement, which is kind of like, is it? <laughs> because okay, it's an AI version. Um, yes. Help me out here. Was it a case of this song was released and then, haha, it's AI? Or was it, here's an AI version of this, of what you can do? Completely like, original it, work. Completely original work. Okay. So what they did so was. So people they, were duped into thinking this was a, nope. a legit collaboration. No, they weren't. They, it was very clear okay. from the start. This is an AI Drake uh, duet with The Weeknd. All right. There was, there was no <laughs> pretense that it was the real people. All right. It was right. in the style of, if you want to do that. Uh, mm. Anyways, however, uh, the record companies didn't like it and they had it pulled from all of the streaming services with Apple and Spotify and yada, 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 yada. So now the songwriters have decided that they're going to enter it into the Grammys. One Gosh, of the world's there's... biggest music awards. And the Grammys have said, yeah, we can consider this because... It's not an entirely AI project. The people behind it actually wrote the lyrics themselves and they used AI to generate the music and to generate the copy voices, if you like, of Drake and and, and The Weeknd. But because there was a large amount of human creativity that went into that in order to program the AI and also to do the lyrics and stuff like that, the Grammys went, fair enough. That can be considered. Can you imagine if it won Song of the Year? Okay, right. Here's here's the thing, right? A big chunk of this um, is to do with the fact that it was two two named artists, mm. right? If this was a case of two artists that sounded like Drake and The Weeknd, would we be having this discussion? You ask too many questions, and they're all good <laughs> questions. Deep answers. Do you know what I mean? This shouldn't be a podcast. This should be a meet in a pub in a snug somewhere where we <laughs> spent hours debating the issues of the day. Anyway, I just because wanted to th- say. This is the thing. This is the thing. Because writers in Hollywood, this is part of the, the strike. Is, yeah. uh, you know, the use of AI. Um, so 
part of the success of this song has been the branding, right? But if somebody comes out and sounds like it, but, you know, it's Joe and Jane blogs or Joe blogs one and two, um, are we going to have the same level of attention? Of course not. You know, so much of the success of this song is down to brand recognition. So mm. I think there is a very legitimate reason why this song should not win. And that's because it was the appropriation of identity. Now, this does mean, however, that we have to start looking at copyright. I mean, we do image rights already, but we have to start looking at a more holistic um, view of copyright to actually, you know, copyright one's persona. Mm. That's kind of interesting because you got to protect yourself against deep fakery now. So basically, this was an example of, you know, two deep fakes working in concert with each other with the spring, with the strings pulled by, you know, a, a human producer, mm. producers. Uh, I think if um, Drake in the weekend said, yeah, throw us Fiverr. Because <laughs> they need a fire. I would have no problem with this whatsoever because it solved a problem for them. Or, or here's the thing, maybe Drake and The Weeknd actually do a collaboration. How well would that do in com- compared well, to the AI alternatives? I'm quite sure it will be massive. It will be massive. Anyway, they, these are things for, for, for another day. We're running out of time. of one more story, uh, and that is um, TikTok and data and the EU, which we were talking about uh, at length and stuff like that, and where data is kept and all that kind of stuff. So TikTok needs somewhere to store their data within the EU on their EU users. Where have they chosen? Yeah, they've chosen Dublin. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, they've they've chosen Ireland because they, they've already got an operation here. Uh, they they instigated something called Project Clover. <laughs> and the idea is basically, yeah, I know. It's good branding, isn't it? Um, oh and this is all about bringing their data storage and transfer practices into line uh, with mm. GDPR. Because as we know, for years, um, uh, Europe relied on basically a gentleman's agreement uh, with the US for the transfer of data generated by EU citizens um, just to go, yeah, we trust you. Uh, we've got our standards over here in Europe. We're going to trust you to uh, treat it with the same level of care and attention to detail uh, over there in the States because we're friends. Mm. We're, we're good people. You're good people. Mm. Uh, and of course, uh, we discovered that was not the case. Mm. And uh, Safe Harbor was struck down. Its successor, Privacy Shield, was struck down. We no longer trust America for these things. That's why if you're uh, a European citizen, you got to have your data over here in Europe where it is going to be actively um, protected. Now, yeah. the issue with TikTok, uh, owned by ByteDance, Chinese company, was basically, look, we, we, we don't get on with China at all. Uh, you know, anything that our citizens, you know, happen to send over there, we're, we're assuming it is being used for, you know, surveillance or, you know, nefarious mm. data gathering um, mm. uh, purposes. We're, we're just assuming that, you know. So if you want to sort of continue operating in Europe, well, you got to make yourself GDPR compliant. You got to come in-house. So TikTok said, yep, that's fine. Okay, we're, we've got this thing called Project Clover. We're setting up a data center in Ireland. We've got one in Norway as well. How do you like that? Um, also, do you know what? We're gonna we're looking at uh, opening a second one in Ireland as well. So, you know, this is the this is how seriously they're they're taking things. Mm. I mean, TikTok uh, stores its sort of global uh, data in states, Malaysia and Singapore. In the States, their equivalent of Project Clover was called Project Texas. Oh. You don't get more Texas than, than the States. Yeah. And to keep everything on the up and up, a UK-based uh, cybersecurity firm called NCC is going to be monitoring what's happening with uh, with this data. So it's not just a case of TikTok going, oh yeah, we're throwing it into a box yeah. over here. Um, it will be audited and vetted to in, make sure in- that what they've committed to is what they're actually doing. Interesting that a UK company is monitoring it, seeing as the UK, mm. the UK isn't in the EU. <laughs> yeah. But, meow, but, you know, meow. Meow. Right. Listen, we've run out of time for this week. Niall Kitson, as always, thanks for chatting and keeping us up to date with the news. This is Tech Radio from techcentral.ie. Get every episode of Tech Radio by clicking follow on your podcast player right now. 
Ireland's contribution to the space economy, or Space 4.0, has been steadily improving thanks to a combination of fresh investment, upskilling and companies developing an eye for applications of existing technology. We wanted to check out the latest about Irish space exploration, so we went straight to a brand new Irish Space Association, which launched this year. Ah, launched this year, get it? An industry group based at DCU Alpha. Two of their directors, Patricia Moore and John O'Donoghue, spoke with Niall Kitson about the progress being made on the ground, in orbit and beyond. Patricia, to start with your experience, Ireland has had a space strategy for a couple of years now. I suppose the, the central um, goal of which is to make the space economy or the space sector much more visible. How are we getting along in terms of fulfilling that goal? Uh, yeah, so 2019 uh, was a really exciting year for, for space in Ireland because it was actually the launch of the first ever space strategy for Ireland. Um, and as you say, the, the government set out some ambitious targets around, you know, uh, putting space in Ireland on the map, I suppose, so to speak. Um, from my own experience in terms of their their delivery against that, um, like one of the key tenets was to support 100 companies to benefit from ESA engagement. And, you know, I, I work for Mindseed, which is a space technology consultancy company. And, you know, over the last decade, we've seen the number of European space agency kind of funded companies rise from around 30 um, to about 100 now. So I think we're kind of on track um, in, in that sense. And that in and of itself, I suppose, increases, you know, the public awareness um, of Ireland's activities in space, because I suppose maybe a lot of people mightn't have thought of Ireland as a space active country before. Um, I think awareness is certainly increasing, um, but I would say there's still a, a job to be done to to even accelerate that again. And I suppose I'm conscious that the, the National Space Strategy um, is set to be renewed effectively because it's supposed to run from 2019 to 2025. Um, so the, there's, you know, the scope there to, to set more ambitious targets again, maybe looking into the future, um, given the success that we've recorded with the, the original space strategy. On that point of setting targets, do you think there is that sort of intimidatory factor of people thinking about research and products for space and thinking we're going to be running into the millions of euros here. This is going to be something that's completely uh, out of our price range for one, or perhaps the technology is far too difficult to get a hold of and make sense of. Absolutely, Niall. And I think traditionally that that has been probably true um, that, that the space program in general has been traditionally a very capital intensive um, program and that if you want to launch things into space, it's typically been the remit of, you know, large organisations and maybe governments um, in the main. But in recent years, we're seeing a real democratisation, as we call it, of space, whereby private enterprise um, can, can afford to launch um, satellites into space. And, you know, just to get put it into perspective, um, we currently have about 11,000, slightly more um, satellites orbiting the Earth. And that's a 40% increase on what was recorded last year. Um, so, you know, at an estimate, there was about 3,000 objects leaving the planet um, over the last year, which is a new record. And that's largely due to the, the you know, arrival of the CubeSat. Um, and for, for those that aren't familiar with the CubeSat, it's a small satellite, um, you know, that's kind of measured in cereal boxes, um, that kind of scale, um, as opposed to maybe the more traditional satellites that people would be familiar with. But because many of those can be launched at the same time. It means that the cost of launching an individual satellite has come right down. Um, and we're even seeing Ireland talking about launching its own satellites from both academic um, environments. So we have Airsat uh, 1, which is due to launch. And then we also have private companies in Ireland looking at launching their own satellites as well. Um, so it's certainly something that, you know, it shouldn't be as intimidating anymore to get involved. Some people are aware of this and are capitalising on the immense opportunities that that presents. But we certainly need to, to shout a little bit louder about the, the scale of the opportunities that exist and that, you know, people forget sometimes that of those 11,000 satellites, most of them are actually pointed back at Ireland um, or, or the Earth, as we say. So, you know, the, the dominating satellites are the ones providing satellite communication services and um, which provide a lot of the services that we take for granted every day. Um, and the second biggest sector, I suppose, is the Earth observation sector. So those satellites are looking back at Earth and um, helping us monitor things like climate change and, and helping us develop mitigating actions where necessary and to measure the efficacy of those mitigating actions. Um, 
Um, so, you know, people think of space maybe as something that's out there, you know, and there are satellites observing space, for example, but people sometimes I think forget that most of those satellites are out there providing useful services to people on the ground. And sometimes they're taken a little bit for granted and we need to be shouting a little bit louder about how dependent we are on the space sector um, in Ireland and the rest of the world. And indeed, on the show during COVID, we were talking to researchers who we lo- who were looking at traffic patterns as gathered by satellite imagery during the pandemic to see how you know people were getting about at a time when there was meant to be lockdown and we were all meant to be staying at home. So there are very um, very interesting applications out there that are being done by universities uh, without necessarily you know having to put up their their own infrastructure. So. In looking at the sort of work that's being done over here, to what extent does attracting talent, getting more researchers, getting more people that, you know, have a a space centric, I suppose, um, uh, perspective to come to Ireland and to treat it as somewhere where they can do research effectively and, you know, cost effectively as well? Yeah, so actually a lot of that, I think, is around the ecosystem that is here, Niall. So, you know, Ireland has a very strong base in certain research activities. And I suppose, you know, artificial intelligence, machine learning are certainly ones that would come to the fore. Um, And Ireland has a strong record in attracting top talent in some of those areas. Um, Part of the difficulty, I suppose, from a space relevant or a space perspective is that a lot of people are applying those skill sets in non-space domains. And and maybe we need to increase awareness um, of the opportunities for those skill sets in the space sector. Um, and that's what I'd like to see kind of happen um, over the, the next few years and maybe as part of the next space strategy is to try and, you know, have some of our existing talent base apply their skills um, to, the, to the earth observation, let's say, challenges in the context of AI. Um, you know, I, I do see that space is probably arguably the best poised sector to help us solve some of those um, global challenges that we're all facing at the moment. And I think Ireland is particularly well positioned to capitalise um, on the, the space assets. So as you know, Ireland has been a member of the European Space Agency now for, for close to 50 years um, and we're actively contributing to a lot of you know missions at the moment. Um, and I, a lot of those, you know, are, as I say, using, you know, earth observation applications to to deliver, you know, value in terms of insights and metrics about what's happening on the planet and what's changing. Um, and all of that information, you know, that they're using is, is freely provided. So the European Space Agency has what's called a Sentinel program, where they provide a, a range of of high resolution and, and medium and low resolution, I suppose, images, um, depending on the, if you think of them, I suppose, as, as advanced cameras that are constantly taking photographs of the earth and can be used to monitor change. Um, you know, once you have the know-how to, to process those images, you know, we can really learn a lot about the, the changes in our planet um, by looking at them. So, you know, I think attracting talent is one thing, but also we've got a really talented pipeline within the country that I'd like to see maybe become more aware of how their skills can be applied to some of these global challenges. Because, you know, I think there's a, a, a disconnect, I think, um, between knowing everyone knows that these challenges exist, but maybe people don't appreciate how important the space sector is in addressing those global challenges. Yeah, Patricia, and indeed your expertise really is in turning space-bound technologies into applicable technologies down on Earth. So what kind of uh, work are you seeing Irish companies do by sort of taking um, space technology and using it to solve Earth-bound problems? Yeah, I think actually like your listeners would be probably surprised at the, the diversity of um, the applications that Irish companies are involved in. So, you know, some of our applications would range from, you know, simulating missions, for example, using drones before you actually deploy a drone, for example, that you might use Earth observation data to, you know, simulate uh, a mission so that you can anticipate and maybe take preemptive mitigation actions as to how your drone might perform, whether that be weather data, whether it be terrain data, or, or even terrestrial robotics, for example. Um, and we've seen some some of our clients use that in the area of education. Um, agriculture obviously is a very big sector in Ireland. Um, so we've seen a lot of companies develop technologies for, you know, monitoring, I suppose, the environmental footprint of the agricultural industry. Um, and I suppose a lot of this is in response to, you know, the, the dynamic regulatory environment that we find ourselves in in response to, again, climate change. And, then, you know, satellites can be used for a range of things like monitoring, you know, the diversity of species, for example, on a farm um, in terms of me- monitoring its carbon footprint. Um, and these are all things, you know, that are becoming increasingly important in terms of, you know, the reporting capability and um, for the agricultural sector. Um, you know, 
the, the USPA, which is the European Union's um, space program agency, re- produced a lovely report very recently that talked about the, the key downstream verticals. And they spoke about the opportunities and challenges um, and the market sizes that existed, but the, the diversity of applications for the combination, I suppose, of Earth observation data and the, the global positioning data um, is, is, is immense. You know, if we're talking agriculture, you know, aviation and drones, because they obviously use the, the positioning um, technologies and the communications capabilities a lot, um, you know, for monitoring things like biodiversity and um, for monitoring ecosystems you know, see how they change over time and um, to provide information on climate. Um, you know, as you said, their traffic management, for example, as you saw with COVID and seeing where people were moving um, even, you know, monitoring energy infrastructure and things like that, um, you know, monitoring critical infrastructure, even like bridges and roadways and things like that for, for disturbances and maybe for, you know, preemptive operational and maintenance activities and, um, you know, maritime and inland waterways, um, water quality and environmental monitoring, the, the, the range of applications is really just immense. There's very few use cases that wouldn't benefit from some sort of application of, of you know, a combination of the space assets that are out there. John, your experience is pretty much in the opposite direction. You've been developing products uh, on Earth for use in space. So tell us a little bit about your country, your company's journey. Yeah, um our, our company uh, came from a, a, an unusual uh, background, but I don't think it's a unique story either when it comes to space. Um, we started off coating metals for um, uh, orthopedic and medical device um, purposes, uh, going, you know, coating surfaces of metals going into the body for various different functionalities. And uh, one of our directors had prior experience working with the European Space Agency and, uh, you know, made the point to us that we should talk to them because they're always interested in new material breakthroughs. Um, We had no sooner spoken to the European Space Agency than we were, uh, you know, whisked onto the fast track and um, next thing they're over visiting us in UCD with uh, Airbus and, you know, Thales Alenia and other big uh, space prime companies in tow. And, um, you know, but we still pinch ourselves as to what happened, you know, and how quickly it happened. Uh, and we ended up, um, you know, almost a decade later uh, being part of a really important scientific launch to the sun, uh, which is um, the solar orbiter mission. We ended up coating the heat shield of the solar orbiter. So for a good portion of every year over the next seven to eight years, we have the closest man-made object to the sun. Um, We have a black coating on the heat shield of the solar orbiter, which protects it from the very intense uh, different frequencies that the sun puts out. Uh, the, The surface of the solar orbiter heat shield converts all of those frequencies to infrared energy, which is heat, and that heat is dumped. Uh, to deep space. So, you know, we've gone from being uh, a very, very uh, under the radar company uh, working in inner space, if you like, you know, putting implants into the body to being, you know, one of the foremost outer space plays there is. Um, hasn't always been a happy journey. Like it's, you know, when you're, when you're dragged along like that, a lot of other things fall by the wayside. You have to focus and we had to make a decision as to what we would focus on. Um, and this was a, a, a project that uh, it's almost a, you know, a bihod dream to be involved in something like this. So we made a decision to drop our medical um, surface technologies at least for a while and focus on space. And um, yeah, it, it, you know, dealing with these huge companies when you're small, there's a huge learning curve. Um, uh, you don't always feel that you're in control of what you're doing yourself. We got phenomenal help from the European Space Agency, but primarily from um, the space delegation within Enterprise Ireland. Um, and they, they, they held our hand along the, the, the route um, and just you know took a lot of the, the I suppose, uh, impulsive aspects of the journey out of it for us. So, um, yeah, but, uh, there, there's a learning for small companies that, you know, we feel that through the Irish Space Association, we can, we can help 
teach uh, other companies about the journey that we were on. Um, Ireland didn't have as much experience then as it does today. Uh, like Patricia talked earlier there about there being 30 companies in the space sector only a few short years ago, and there's about 100 or possibly a lot more. The, the thing that we're beginning to realize is that a lot of companies don't realize that they're using space assets or that they're involved in space. So um, we can help, you know, smaller um, startups um, that are toying with the idea of becoming involved in space. We're there to talk to companies that are working in other sectors that might be able to translate across with their technology into the space sector. So it's um, our journey was particularly exciting. It's not always going to be that visible or that, um, uh, I suppose, game-changing. You know, we were the only comp- coding that the European Space Agency was able to use in order to launch that mission uh, because of our particular characteristics. But, you know, it's it, it, there, there are lots of, I suppose there are lots of different opportunities in space and some of them don't get the same profile. But the sector at large is hugely um, exciting and there are massive opportunities within it. Uh, as as we as we enter into the, the you know the coming decades, so yeah, very excited about where we are. Very excited to be involved in the Irish Space Association. You talked about uh, having to leave behind your initial um, uh, product line for medical devices. To what extent did that pivot affect your product design? Did you stop thinking about okay, we're going to use this technology to solve problem A? To start thinking of, okay, what we were working at the moment is only the starting point to work with prob- problem B, if you will. Yeah, it, it, it was completely disruptive. Um, when you're a small company and your resources are tight, um, uh, you know, you just have to have to focus on, on, on the job in hand. And uh, so we, we dropped everything. And to an extent... Um, we were propelled along. We were not the people designing the surface per se. Our technology, you know, was was a very good fit, a hand in glove fit for um, a need that the European Space Agency and Airbus and Thalassolenia had by virtue of the nature of the mission to the sun. Um, we therefore didn't have to worry too much about the design. We had to worry more about, you know, the methodology and the qualification. Um, it changed the nature of what equipment we, we needed. So we had to, to re-stock uh, in terms of surface characterization techniques, etc. Um, and that sort of got us, you know, a little bit closer to, to, to the world of testing and, you know, ultimately brought us into the arena of thermal vacuum cycling and the whole of which, as I said earlier, is a service that we provide as a company now. But um, we wouldn't have gone down that road uh, at all. Um, and it's only now that we're really getting back post-COVID to looking at the, uh, you know, our, our, our initial remit, which was, quote, uh, you know, titanium and steel and cobalt chrome going into the skeleton Um or to quote stents or whatever else that might be needed in the in the vascular arena, and we're we're only really getting back to that now, um, almost a decade later. But uh, I suppose the really nice thing about that translation from one area to another is a lot of the metals that are used in various different sectors in industry today. Those contemporary metals they're shared amongst all of the different arenas and different industrial sectors. So when you work on when you work on them in one arena, um, there's a, there's a, uh, I, I suppose, you know, a, a natural uh, spread into other, or translation into other sectors. So while we might have lost time from a, you know, a commercial perspective, there's an enormous amount of development that has been done that's going to be uh, able to benefit us in other sectors um, into the future that are not space uh, essentially, while we continue then to work in space as well. 
Trisha, just to wrap things up, uh, we mentioned COVID and COVID projects um, using space technology earlier. Uh, now that we have the Irish Space Association, is there a sense that we're making up for lost time? Uh, you know, is is this the right moment for companies to start coming together under this sort of common umbrella? Or, or has it always been the case that, you know, innovation has been bubbling up under uh, and it was just sort of waiting for this umbrella group to come together? You know, I think, Niall, um, the space sector is kind of one of those funny things that, you know, well, something slowed down during COVID, other things accelerated. Um, and Earth observation, you know, is something that you can do from your, your home place with a laptop. Um, the data is freely available. It's low cost. Um, probably more people were given a bit more time to have a go at things um, over the course of COVID. So there's a sense in the sector that the downstream actually probably grew over COVID. Um, but I would say that there was a, a real momentum within the space sector before COVID hit in Ireland. Um, you know, the, the growth we, we saw from 2019, it, it was really accelerating. Even the, the emergence of a national space strategy for the first time was reflective of growth that was already there. Um, and I suppose there were previous efforts to, you know, try and get some more sectoral representation and maybe COVID put a bit of a halt to that in and of itself. And I suppose what we're trying to do with the Irish Space Association is to pick up that momentum again and to make sure that, you know, we get to where we were before COVID with the, the collaborative piece. Like I think Irish people are very good at collaboration um, and it's, it's something that people, you know, often from all parts of the world mention and point out about this country that we're small and people know each other. And, you know, I think it's collaboration um, and networking that really, differentiates us and, you know, gives us a, a competitive edge. And I suppose the Irish Space Association is trying to, to capitalise on, on the network that's already there by putting a bit of structure on it and I suppose putting space to work in the Irish economy. And that was Patricia Moore and John O'Donoghue of the Irish Space Association. This is Tech Radio. That's it for our show this week. Just before we go, we have time for one more thing. Live from heaven, as always, Mr. Stephen Jobs. Thanks, Dusty. More stories online this week include a report on how many Irish companies are planning IT workforce cuts, national broadband Ireland makes it to 50,000 connections, and why Russian cyber attacks are changing as the war in Ukraine drags on. You'll find all those and more online at techcentral.ie. Thanks, Steve. We're back again next Friday on RT Radio 1 Extra. And of course, you can get new episodes automatically by clicking follow on your podcast player. Do so now if you haven't already. Until next time, from myself, Dusty Rhodes, and from Niall Kitson, as always, take care. Enjoy the weather. Tech Radio is produced by DustPod.io. From me, Artemis, goodbye. Goodbye.